Welcome, everyone, to this episode of Manufacturing Talk Radio. I am Tim Grady. I'm here with my co-host, Lou Weiss, who is also president of All Metals and Forge Group, the sponsor for Manufacturing Talk Radio. And we appreciate their sponsorship so that we can be on the air and talk with interesting people who've got great insight, like Dr. Chris Keel, who'll be joining us shortly. Lou, uh, exciting report coming out of the Credit Managers Association again. Looks to be all good news. Don't know what we'll talk about. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a hard show to do when everything is good. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's not like uh, CNN, Fox News. They always come up with some negative stuff to talk about. But we're, we're really in, in, out in the market to make everybody feel good. We feel good. We have nothing to talk about. So that being said, uh, Dr. Chris Keel. Thanks Very for joining us. You're welcome. And, and to that last point, that's kind of an interesting subject to talk about because there was a study recently done by an economist from Dartmouth who was struck by how bad the news was coming out of the US media compared to other media. He was looking specifically at the coverage of the pandemic and COVID-19 and noticed that the European press was often a lot more optimistic about certain things and the scientific press was a lot more optimistic so you found something like 43 percent of the scientific articles were negative maybe 61 percent of the international articles were negative 88 percent of the american media articles were negative so no matter how much good news there was they managed to find the dark cloud that is the job of an economist. We are supposed to be doing that. Our job is to find the dark cloud behind a silver lining. And I resent the media taking that away from us. Um, so, <laughs> so as we as we jump into, into this latest report, you're absolutely right. The credit managers index was very encouraging. We have now had five months in a row where none of the readings are below 50. So those who are familiar with the credit managers index or the purchasing managers index or any of a dozen other such indices, you know that everything over 50 is considered expansion. Anything under 50 is considered contraction. So when you're in the 40s or when you're in the 30s or heaven help us last spring when we were in the 20s, that was bad, bad news. When you're in the 50s and the 60s and the 70s, it's an indication that there are positive trends. And as I've mentioned before, credit managers are unique in some interesting respects. They tend to think into the future. I've talked about this before. Anyone who's worked with a credit manager knows that they're thinking when you're going to get paid you know they're giving you 60 90 120 180 day terms and what it really boils down to is they're like what are you going to be like in three or six months i mean i don't care that you're doing well now you've got six months to screw it up um and <laughs> and not pay me so what's happening is the economy going to be okay in three or six months are you going to be okay in three or six months so they have a tendency to be fairly futuristic and the numbers that we saw this month all in the 50s if you look at some of the so-called favorable factors those are in the 60s even in the 70s sales have been up in the 70s now for 
four months in a row. And all of that just points to not only good news about what's happening now, but good news about what they expect to see later uh, into the summer, into the fall. And that's always what has made things like the PMI new orders index powerful. It's, it's great if somebody can tell you, hey, it's happening today, but you're like, great, what am I exactly am I supposed to do with that information? It's today. You know, am I supposed to, you know, it's a little late to have made a strategic decision. It's today. But if someone can say, yep, June's looking pretty good. Uh, September is looking better. December is awesome. Now you can start to plan. And that's that's why the CMI is fun to work with. So all of that being said, and I, I thank you for that 30,000 foot view of what's coming. So where's the black cloud? Because we always know there's a black cloud. You guys are the, the masters of black clouds. What is it? Where is it? When is it? Inflation. <laughs> There's your black cloud. If there is a black cloud hovering in the distance, it is inflation because one of the one of the accessories to success is inflation. You know, whenever it, it, it always cracks me up when people are saying we need to control inflation, we need to control. Well, have a recession. That works like a charm. Um, and, you know, I mean, all you have to do is go into a severe recession and there's no inflation. But when things start to improve, there's pressure. You're going to have for a while, particularly now, more demand than there is supply for that demand. You're going to see producers in a position to either A, raise their prices because they want to, or raise them because they're trying to deal with that demand and they're trying to sort of tamp it down a little bit. If you look at the latest capacity utilization numbers, they're coming up. And capacity utilization numbers are another good way of, of sort of figuring out if there's slack in the manufacturing sector. And there's less slack now. It's still not up into what is considered normal levels between 80 and 85%, but it's getting close. And once it hits into that 80 to 85% range, now you start to run into the potential for bottlenecks. That's inflationary. Inflationary surges are more universal problems. People obsess about recessions for obvious reasons, but lots of people make money during a recession. We had lots of people make money last year. There's demand for certain things, even in a recession. There are people that have money during a recession. Everybody gets nailed by inflation. Everybody's prices go up, whether you're rich or poor or successful or unsuccessful, your prices are going up. And as a result, it is a burden. Some companies can handle it better than others, but if we look at what's happening now, steel is up, copper is up, lumber is up, oil is up, gas is up. I mean, everything is up. And as a result, everyone's costs have increased and they're going to pass those on one way or the other. And now the fact that we have the, what they call the Suez squeeze, yes. uh, the prices are going to go up even more. 
Yep, I mean, certain things, you know, it's good news that they finally got the sucker floated. Um, the We were mentioning before the show that the most disappointed people in the world are the Somali pirates. Um, they were like, oh, man, this is going to have all 800 of those ships coming right by them. Um, but now it's, it's, it's open. Probably not having a, a, a huge impact on the supply chain, but everything else we dealt with last year has. So you still have the number one problem in the supply chain, and that is that 900,000 sailors that are working these ships are from countries that have not been able to vaccinate. And when you pull up to a port and you have a bunch of unvaccinated crew, they're not allowed to dock and they're not allowed to get off the ship. And this is creating real issues in terms of, of the normal supply chain. So as most people that are in the audience are aware, the supply chain has been in tatters for a year. And most of the assumptions that we used to make, they don't make any sense now. You know, just-in-time has died. Um, the just-in-time system has been replaced by the eventually it'll get their system um and you know that, that's that's hard to plan for yeah that's uh it's a, diff a difficult time for sure uh tim what's going on in uh, your your side of the story here well clearly uh chris i agree and as a consumer i'm going no i don't want four dollar a gallon gas i used to have that and when i had it i cut back on my spending because that was a big piece of my monthly budget. So that gets a little spooky because inflation may slow the economy and our GDP is not likely mm -hmm. to grow uh, to the 10% that some people were predicting and could go closer to two, which would be awful. Yeah, I think we're we're probably starting the year a lot more robustly than we thought we were going to. The Atlanta Fed just released their latest GDP estimate for first quarter, and it's 10%. I mean, that is about twice what they were predicting even at the beginning of the quarter. Towards the end of the year, there's expected to be a bit of a slowdown, but we're still talking about six and a half, maybe even 7% growth. Inflation will probably not dent it this year, but it would probably have impact on it next year, depending on where the inflation comes from. Because right now, we're getting it primarily in commodities. Those inflationary surges tend to work themselves out because the producers eventually catch up with demand. When you look at, for example, oil prices, the oil majors, the big producers in the Middle East and Nigeria and Russia, they honestly don't want prices much over 75 or 80 bucks a barrel because they know that when the prices get that high, you get these marginal players that start to come in and chip away at their market share. You know, all of a sudden you've got like, what that, what, what's Chad doing producing oil? I mean, come on. And the Nigerians hate that, you know? So it's like, you know, Chad is going to produce oil if it gets close to 90. Um, so let's keep it lower than that. So I don't think we're going to see $4 at the pump, but we're likely to see $270, um, $280. And that's about a buck and a half higher than it was even a few months ago. I don't think it's enough to start causing people to ditch their SUVs and trucks and, and going out and finding Priuses and 
you know, bear in mind that I'm from Kansas, and the only reason that we bought Priuses out here is that we threw them in the back of the truck as a spare. Um, <laughs> you know, so we we probably won't go that direction, but you never know about people on the coast. So we're probably worried most about money supply inflation, and that goes back to the stimulus slash rescue. And that comes back to what the consumer does with that money. Um, if there is a tremendous surge of consumer spending, that's going to be more generally inflationary. And we don't yet know how the consumer plans to spend that money. We know they'll be spending a lot more on services because they spent on goods last year. So we'll just have to watch. I think that a good part of that money, at least in my opinion, a good part of that money is going to go to paying back debt. Definitely. So I, I don't think that the, that money is going to wind up adding or contributing to an inflationary period. Most of the most of the consumer surge is going to be from money that was saved last year, because you're absolutely right. The one point nine trillion in the first part, not all of that went to consumers. I mean, roughly a quarter of it is. And the majority of the people who were getting it, unlike the first round, which was more generally distributed, this was going to people who ostensibly were hurt by the recession last year. So it's going to go to rent and mortgages and paying bills and buying food. Where you're seeing the consumer inflation is at about two to three trillion dollars is on the sidelines. Consumers saved a lot of money last year. Businesses have a lot of money. Some of them made a lot of money and saved it. And that may start coming into the economy aggressively. But if it goes into services rather than goods, that tends not to be as inflationary because it's more ephemeral. Um, it's like if you blow a lot of money at the restaurant or at the hotel or going on vacation, it's kind of gone, it kind of fritters away. It doesn't really circulate that much. Goods producing tends to be more lasting because if you are buying a car, well, you're supporting the car maker and the people who sold the parts to the car maker and you're supporting the steel industry. It, it trickles further um, than buying a big steak dinner. Well, it's always going out for the steak dinner and drive there with your new car. Absolutely. You know, with the Prius in the back. Um, That's just, right. Yeah, That's so. right. <laughs> Chris, at some point, I'm surprised it hasn't already happened, that Moody's would reclassify our debt, you know, cause a world crisis. But the Democrats are now talking about passing yet another stimulus bill and an infrastructure bill. And... Uh, you know, 30, 35 trillion in debt. I guess that's possible. Mm -hmm. When did these chickens come home to, I know Lou has his, his idea, you're never going to pay it back. But at some point, it's going to come, something's going to come home to roost. Your thoughts? Yeah, yeah you're never going to pay it back. But the interesting thing, you talk about Moody's and, and reclassifying the debt and the like. It would happen if there was anybody else in the world who was remotely responsible. Um, but nobody is. I mean, so, so Moody's goes, you are seriously in debt. And you 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 and you. And you. 
Jesus, is everybody seriously in debt? You pretty much got it. Um, you know, we're obsessing about 110% of our GDP, which we should. Uh, technically, it should never be more than 60% of your GDP. But China's debt's 280% of GDP. Japan's is 260% of GDP. Europe is 180% of GDP. And then there's Brazil, 590% of GDP. You know, so so Moody's looks at that and said, wow, the U.S. is the best of a pathetic lot. Um, there you go. <laughs> and, you know, and it's kind of like nobody has shown the least interest in controlling their debt. So I guess you guys are fine. Um, and, you know, there may be, you know, we need to check with you know, San Marino or Andorra or Liechtenstein, maybe they've got it together, but you know, most of the rest of the world does not. And the only way that you pay down debt like that is, is theoretically you can cut spending and raise revenue. Realistically, you cannot do that. Basically, it is rapid growth. The only thing that's ever gonna take a chunk away from that debt is growing fast. However, that only works if the politicians don't behave like frat boys and say, wow, look at all this extra money coming in. Let's spend it. You know, <laughs> you know and it's like, no, 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 no. You're growing. Quit spending it. Let it deal with your debt, you nincompoops. But, you know. Politicians can't help themselves. They no, have to spend. They do. At least some do, and then others just do other stupid things. Yeah, exactly. It's like, you know, I, I, I often puzzle at this and thinking, well, who in their right mind would run for office these days? And that pretty much tells you everything you need to there know. You go. All the same people are going, no way. Um, so. so we are the AAA rated debt of the, of the gutter team. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yes, th this is this is like being the Cincinnati Bengals and finding yourselves on top. Um, it's like what? <laughs> so, so uh, Chris, uh, what do you what do you think about my uh, my my idea or my thought about this debt will likely never be paid down? It never will. I mean, you know, and frankly, that's been historically the norm. I mean, if you go back even into the days of the empires, um, basically the only thing the country is really worried about is their ability to service that debt. And the biggest problem that we face as far as the debt is concerned, because it obviously isn't affecting our ratings, it's not affecting our ability to borrow, it's the debt service. And at the moment, we're paying out 400 billion roughly a year in debt service. The military budget itself is 700 billion. So we're now creeping up on the military budget in terms of size. Debt service is now the number five category in all federal spending. The only thing we spend money on more aggressively, Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, and the military. So it's, it's kind of the, the problem of the very rich person that can always pay their credit card but if you're very rich, why have you run up 27 credit cards? You know, why, why are you paying out that interest? You, sh you don't need to. It's just simply wasted money. Um, if there's any silver lining to all that, 
all of the debt that we've taken on or the majority of the debt we've taken on in the last 10 years has been purchased by the government itself. 40% of the debt that we've issued has been purchased by the Fed or the government itself. So we don't really owe anybody in the foreign sector very much. They own about 30%. Uh, U.S. investors own about 30%, and then 40% is owned by the government. But it's still money that you could use for something else. I mean, you hear talk about, we need to work on the infrastructure. Yes, we do. If we had that $400 billion every year, we could have been working on the infrastructure. But instead, we're going to go into more debt to work on the infrastructure so that we're now paying out $500 billion a year. Chris, all we have to do is print more money. Just get another credit card. You know, I mean, you just you just pay your visa with the MasterCard, and then you pay the MasterCard with the Discover card, and then you <laughs> That's can, right. and then you go find a Diners Club card from somewhere, and you use that. So. Right, exactly. So, so can we quote you on the fact that the debt will never get paid? Yes. <laughs> it's like it, it would it would not be going out on much of a limb. Um, you know, there's 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 probably like three things in the world that left wing, right wing, and center economists would agree on, and that would be one of them. Um, so, so Chris, uh, is there going to be a global currency reset at some point where they go, okay, next Tuesday, everybody take two zeros off of your debt? Nope. Um, it would be inconvenient, so nobody wants to do it. Um, nobody wants to replace the dollar because there's more of a burden to be the world currency than an advantage. Uh, the only areas that would conceivably be able to compete would be the euro, and the Germans are like, are you insane? We are an export-oriented country, the last thing in the world we want to be is the dominant world currency. The Chinese are like, Excuse me, did you not hear the Germans? They're like the export-oriented country. What do you think we make our money from? You know, it's like, well, there's no in the world that we want to have our currency because the second the Chinese would make their currency the dominant one, the price would soar. And, you know, that's the, the, the bug the U.S. faces. We're facing it now. The dollar is starting to come up, and the reason it's coming up is that there's an expectation that we're going to raise rates at some point to deal with inflation. It's like, hot dog, let's go invest in dollars because they're going to raise the rates. And it's like, stop it. It is hurting our exports. And it's like, well, that's too bad. That's what you get for being the world currency. And it's like, we didn't ask to be the world currency. I know, I know. It's just like you weren't too swift at the meeting and everybody else bolted for the door and there you stood being the world currency. <laughs> Yes, everybody so stuck with the currency and the whole conga line took one step back and we were the sucker who didn't move. Exactly. It's like when the guy asked for volunteers and everybody took a step backwards and you just stood there. He's like, wait a minute, I didn't volunteer. Yes, you did. <laughs> <laughs> well, it certainly is an interesting topic, uh, global uh, finance and uh, global currency and so on. So where where do you see, and I know this is a long topic, but where do you see the uh, Bitcoin and crypto uh, currency uh, fitting into this whole 
global economy issue. Yeah, I mean, they're they're perfectly legitimate investment arms, and, and that's all they'll ever be. They're never going to be a means of exchange. You're never going to go down to the local quick shop and buy a package of Twinkies and a Big Gulp and give them cryptocurrency. But what you will use it for is the same thing you use bonds for, stocks for, you know, people have invested in precious metals, they've invested in commodity metals, they've invested in art. Probably the closest thing right now to sort of the Bitcoin cryptocurrency is the art market because it's got that same same focus. You're you're dealing with a rarity. You've got mm-hmm. the fact that there's a limited amount of Bitcoin, a limited amount of cryptocurrency. Therefore, the value is based on the scarcity. What messes up cryptocurrencies is when for some reason there's a surge in that currency. If there's suddenly a lot more Bitcoin on the market, it'll drop the value of the Bitcoin that's already out there. Just like what happens with art. I mean, it used to be that a Picasso was worth hundreds of thousands of dollars until they found like a hundred of them in the warehouse. And it's like, oh, for God's sake, this man was producing stuff like every 20 minutes. It's no longer of any value. You know, you can get a Picasso for 10 bucks. Um, but at some point, someone's going to say, yeah, but you know, you can't get a new Van Gogh. Um, and that sucker is going to continue to gain in value. And so the Bitcoin will always play a role, any of the cryptocurrencies will, as an investment tool. And it's not for the faint of heart. It's going to be for the people that want to have big scores, but are also willing to take big losses. Because if you guess right, you make a great deal of money. If you guess wrong, you're like, oh, oh, oh no, I lost $20 million in two seconds. Yep, sure did, buddy. <laughs> um, so, so you well, don't want to do this when you're 70, 80 years old? Probably not. Um, and and it's it's one of those things that the only people I worry about are the people that, that are kind of trying to get in on what they think is the ground floor. And it's like, yeah, don't do that. You know, be, be a little bit more safe, but we've always had that, that, that pull. People want to be part of some of these things. And that's been the drive for penny stocks for years. It's like, wow, I can buy all these penny stocks. Yeah. They're, they're worth that much for a reason. Um, So your, your, your best bet is to be, you know, the futurist, this is the point at which somebody kicks themselves and says, why did I not invest in Zoom two years ago? Yeah, right. Well, Chris, isn't cryptocurrency kind of an idea and not actually tangible? Yeah, it's not tangible. I mean, it literally is is a kind of a manufacturing of, of software. And so it is it's very difficult to put your fingers on you know they do actually make physical versions of it representations because people want to hold something in their hand except that it it doesn't exist in a tangible form it's only like when you hold a dollar in your hand and you go to a store it's going to be worth a dollar to every store that you go to if they're not going to sit there and check their books and say Oh, yeah, sorry, buddy. Uh, the dollar is only worth a nickel today, so I need a lot more of those. Unless, of course, you're in a third world country and you're dealing with something like 
the back in the day the Iraqi dinar, where they literally did have to go down the list and say, at this very second, it's worth this. Oops, sorry, change. Oops, sorry, change again. <laughs> sorry, quick, quick, buy now, quick, because it's dying as we speak. But that's kind of the problem with the cryptocurrency is that it doesn't it doesn't have a lasting value. It changes constantly, which is part of why it's an investment tool, because then you can look at it and say, I'm going to buy where it's a little bit high, immediately sell as soon as it goes up a little bit or try to avoid the loss. I mean, it's it's sophisticated. It's gambling that you can do in a tie. Yeah, that's exactly right. Well, does any of this touch manufacturing in any, we know the credit managers index does, right. but all these other speculative things other than inflation, you know, what, what's manufacturing to do? Should they be worried or just continue to keep the machines running? Yeah, I mean, I think it's pretty much stick to the to their, their needles. I mean, it's all the cryptocurrency and to be honest, even the stock and bond market doesn't have the kind of day-to-day -day impact on unreal business because investors do not necessarily react to the things that an individual business owner is reacting to. I mean, if you're a manufacturer, particularly the majority of the manufacturers in the U.S. are small businesses, 75% of them have 25 employees or less. So they're not in a position to drive much of their world. You know, they're selling into somebody else. So you're making something which is going to go into a car or go into an agricultural machine. So you're like, yeah, what I'm really concerned about is how John Deere is doing. And if I'm thinking past John Deere, I'm like, is it raining where it needs to in the Midwest? Is this going to be a good corn year or a bad corn year? Because if it's a bad corn year, the farmers won't be buying machines from John Deere. And if I'm not seeing John Deere sales go up, neither am I. So it, it isn't so much looking at the stock price because stock price is often determined by things like cost cutting. So when John Deere may want to get its prices up, stock prices up. And so, hey, if we cut costs, <clears throat> then that will make our price, our stock price go up. But you're a supplier to Deere going, don't, don't do that. Because if you cut costs, it means you're going to shut down plants. Well, yeah, but that's who I supply my stuff to. You don't want to shut down that plant. Oh, yeah, we do, because it's good for the stock price. So the manufacturer is kind of like, Hi, ignore the stock price, would you? Just keep producing and buying my stuff. Um, sooner or later, the farmers are gonna buy, I promise. <laughs> I'll eat more if that takes what it takes. Yeah, well, it's interesting you mentioned John Deere. I was just reading where every year in America, I found the number astonishing. Farmers purchase a quarter of a million tractors every year are we creating more farms are tractors dying at an extraordinary rate <laughs> we wear them out i mean you know you've got certain purchases that people make particularly consumers that you can realistically see last for you know decades but if you watch how how farmers work i mean those machines are worked to death and i have a grandson who's a large animal veterinarian and 
those machines are worked until they die, you know, and it's just, and they lash them together with duct tape and bailing wire and they have to, but sooner or later it gives up the ghost and, and you got to buy a new one because those things are, they're worked very hard and that's, they don't plan for them to fall apart. It's just that, and manufacturers are well aware of that too, because they wear out their machinery. I mean, that's why there's, there's capital investment. It's just the machines wear out and it's. Well, I think it's part of the grand plan. Uh, I don't think that uh, a John Deere and like company is going to build a machine that's going to last five decades. Mm -hmm. They don't want that because we don't have more land. We don't right. have more farmers. We well, can't sell more tractors. And they also run into the fact that, you know, if you if you build all that into it, and we're all familiar with that, anyone can build a machine that will last forever, and then they turn around to price it and say, this machine is going to last forever. It'll cost you three and a half million dollars because, <laughs> you know, we use platinum and solid gold and, you know, and but it's like, but hey, it'll last forever. And it's like, uh, excuse me? I mean, we all know that we can go and buy something that's going to last forever if we have the money. Um, but if you don't have the money, it's like, it can be something as simple as shoes. You know, I want my shoes to last forever. Fine, pay 300 bucks. Um, but if you haven't got 300 bucks for a pair of shoes, then you're going to go to Walmart and buy a pair for 15 bucks and wear the suckers out. Sounds right. like similar, similar plan. Yep. Well, Chris, we always appreciate your insight and it's kind of fun to chat with you. Lou and I have mentioned this kind of off screen over the years so far, regardless of what topic we bring up. You have an answer. <laughs> May not be a good one or an accurate one, but hey, um, you know, it's, if if it's uh, this is my admonition to all listeners who have children considering careers. If you have kids that are just opinionated in general, be an economist. Um, that's what you're. That's what you're paid to do is have opinions, and and you know, it it doesn't even really matter if you're right. We're like meteorologists. You know, people there always give. They give you another chance the next day. It's like so. Yeah, you guys are formally meteorologists. Yes, we are. We, we're, we're meteorologists that couldn't do the math. Um, so. <laughs> well, Chris, you know, I don't know that we've ever asked you. So let's give you an opportunity to tell people where your website is and how they can get it. <laughs> Very good. Good idea. Um, we actually have a new website, which is promoting this new tool that we've been working on for the last year called the Armada Strategic Intelligence System. And it's pretty easy to find because the website is simply asisintelligence.com. So it's A-S-I-S intelligence.com. And you will see it in all of its glory. It is aimed at manufacturers. Uh, it is 96 to 97% accurate. We've been Ooh. testing it for a year. The guy that developed it for us or in conjunction with this is a retired lieutenant colonel who used the techniques he used in military intelligence and battlefield planning to develop this model. Um, and it's like a hundred variables, mind numbingly complex, but it actually works. And anyone out there who would like to read this thing for a couple months for free, just, just contact me and I'll send it to you. Well, give us your give us the email as well. 
Yeah, the email is easy as well. It is chris.keel, so C-H-R-I-S dot K-U-E-H-L at armadaci.com, A-R-M-A-D-A-C-I.com. Good German name. You know, you can neither pronounce it nor spell it, depending on which you encountered first. <laughs> well, and uh, Chris also does as a sideline some stand-up comedy on weekend nights, so yeah, you exactly. can get him at the same email address. But but only to my cats, and and unless I'm using the laser pointer, they don't care. Oh, <laughs> well, Chris, I think what you've developed for manufacturers warrants an article in our manufacturing outlook easy. Going over to us, and once again, thanks for joining us on Manufacturing Talk Radio. You're very welcome. We'll talk later. Thank you, Doc. Thanks for joining us on Manufacturing Talk Radio. You can listen to all of our episodes at jacketmediaco.com. You can also find us at Manufacturing Talk Radio, which is mfgtalkradio.com. Come back, check us out. We've got lots of new information and articles. Thanks for listening. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.